If you'd like to open up your Bibles to Job chapter 32, we're going to be continuing our series through this book of wisdom. We've come to the Elihu passages. So this is 438 of the ESV Pew Bibles, otherwise it's Job chapter 32, and we're going to be looking at 1 through 22, so the entire chapter, as we kick off the Elihu speeches. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your blessing as it is read and proclaimed. Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to hear and understand and apply your word. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. There was a mother and her young child, her young son, and they went to the grocery store and they got a cart and they were going up and down the aisles and the mother ran into someone she knew. So she stopped her cart and they had a conversation. And it wasn't long before her son started looking around and, and something caught his attention and he ran over and grabbed the item. And he came back and, and started pulling on her leg and said, Mom, Mom, Mom. And the mother turned around and said, You're interrupting. Let me finish my conversation, and then you can tell me what you want to say. And then she went back and finished her conversation with her friend. And after they were done, and the friend moved on, she turned to her son, she said, Now, what is it? And he said, Can we get this? And she said, Yes, put it in the cart. And she said, You need to understand that when two grown-ups are talking, you shouldn't interrupt. You need to wait until they're done, and then you can ask me your question. Do you understand? Yeah, he understood that. Well, a few, day, a few days later, Mom was in the living room, and she was on the phone walking back and forth in front of the, the picture window in their living room. And all of a sudden, her son ran down the hall and was, was all excited and was about to interrupt, but he could see the look on Mom's face, and she went like this and pointed to the phone and put the finger up and then went back, and then he remembered, oh, yeah, I can't interrupt Mom when she's talking to another grown-up. So he patiently waited and, and stood around and finally she got off the phone and she said, now, what is it that you wanted to tell me? And he said, well, I was, I was in the bathroom and, and I flushed and it, it started coming over and it, it's not stopping and it's still running over. And she said, what? And so they ran into the bathroom and she shut the water off and after the crisis was over, she came back and she said, why didn't you say something? And he said, you told me when you're talking to another grown-up that I shouldn't interrupt. She said, you're right, but sometimes it's okay to interrupt. For example, if it's urgent, if it's something that can't wait, then it's okay to interrupt. Do you understand? Uh, kind of. And he, she said, you need to figure out, is this something that can wait, or is this something that you need to tell me right now? Then it's okay to interrupt. In Job chapter 32, we see Elihu interrupting because it's urgent. He can't wait. This is something that needs to be said. Up to this point in the book of Job, we've heard from his three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, and Job. We've heard from Job, and we've heard these conversations as they ping-pong back and forth. But now, when we get to 
chapter 32, we realize that there has been a fifth person listening in all along on the conversation. And his name is Elihu. Now Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job are all grown-ups. And even though Elihu is younger than the rest of them, as we'll see, we can't really call him a child. Yet because of the honor system in the ancient Near East culture and this, this strong emphasis on the younger um, honoring and respecting and, and waiting for, for the elders and, and the people and the elders, because of that system was, it was ingrained, Elihu was still hesitant to interrupt. In his own words, it says he was timid and afraid to interrupt and to speak to them. So he has held off. But in the end, he did interrupt. He did speak because what he had to say was urgent. It was important. It couldn't wait. God had been accused of acting unjustly. And Elihu could not let that stand. This chapter, chapter 32, sets the tone for the next several chapters, 32 through 37. It, it sets the tone for what we're going to read through. And what I want us to see this morning is that Elihu is a good guy. And he has good things to say. And it's a good thing that he interrupted the conversation. Why? Well, because he's bringing God's word to Job and his three friends. And it's always a good idea when God's word interrupts our life. It's always a good thing when God's word interrupts our life. Let's read Job chapter 32 and listen to the introduction of Elihu. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I have waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I will also with my, I will answer with my share. I will also declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like a wine that has no vent. 
like new wineskins, ready to burst. I must speak that I, might find, that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So we have come to the Elihu speeches. Uh, up to this point, we've seen uh, the beginning, the introduction, the, the opening narrative. We've seen Job and his three friends speaking back and forth. And now we have, for the next several chapters, Elihu, and then God. That's it. And then the epilogue in 42. Job's done. Job is done speaking. And so that you know, there is not 100% agreement, even among inerrancy-believing Bible-believing, Lord-following uh, scholars in the Old Testament, there is not 100% agreement over what kind of person Elihu is. Some say that he is a positive presence in the book of Job, and that he is bringing something to the table by rebuking Job for implying that God uh, needs to defend himself. Others see Elihu as a negative influence, as someone who doesn't really bring anything to the table. There are some that say, we don't really even need this in here. They don't understand. Why would we even have the Elihu speeches? They don't seem to fit into the book of Job. So our question is, which is it? Is Elihu a good guy or a bad guy? And it's a very big decision. We're going to spend some time on it this morning because it will color how we read and interpret the next several chapters. There's just no way around it. So this is a big decision that we have to make at the beginning. And the key to unlocking whether Elihu is either a good guy or a bad guy is contained in the first few verses. First, it should be obvious from reading those first five verses that Elihu is one angry man. A shocking four times in the opening five verses, we read the, the phrase, he burned with anger, he burned with anger, he burned with anger. Over and over again, he's burning with anger. So who is Elihu angry with and why? Well, verse 2 tells us he burned with anger at Job. And verse 3 says he burned with anger also at Job's three friends. So that's who he's angry with, Job and his three friends. Now why? Verse 2 tells us he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He justified himself rather than God. Now this language does not refer to Job's ongoing insistence of his innocence. Remember throughout the, the beginning of the book of Job, uh, he's been consistent in declaring that he is a, a man of God who has turned from evil and who uh, fears God, and who is blameless and upright. Over and over again, Job said, yes, this is where I'm at. I'm not going to give in to you guys, and, and you telling me that, I'm, that I've done something evil to bring all this suffering on me. No. And so he's insisted that. That's not what this is talking about. But this language where it says he justified himself rather than God is talking about, in the course of his speeches, he has been implying that God has somehow made a mistake. Job has repeatedly declared that he was innocent, which is true, but his insistence crosses the line. 
he crossed the line a few times. For example, Job concluded that God was treating him like an enemy. Job 7.20, why have I become a burden to you? Job 13.24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? So Job has implied that, that he is now God's enemy. Now, if you remember when we went through this and covered it, I said, that's not true. But from Job's perspective, it seemed that way, so he gave utterance to it. He says, God's treating me like an enemy. No, no, he's not. So that's one way he crossed the line. But Job has also demanded that God show up and explain himself. You remember this. Job has essentially summoned God to show up in court so Job can prove his innocence. Here's Job 9.16. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Job 13.3. But I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. And Job 23, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Remember, this is Job saying, hey, I want my day in court before God. And Job is implying that God has acted unjustly. He, he thinks, you remember, that, that God has, has made a mix-up somewhere. Maybe he's... Uh, made some kind of filing error or some kind of clerical mistake or uh, somehow he's gotten the wrong guy because surely the God that he knew and that he was familiar with would not be treating Job like he has been treating him. So Job was correct to insist that he was experiencing undeserved suffering, but he was wrong to imply that God was not acting justly or rightly. He was wrong to imply that God had made a mistake. And this is where we can clearly see Job's humanity. Uh, Job, if, if you remember, I've spoken repeatedly about how he serves as a type that points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, this is the way types operate. Types do point to Jesus because they're similar and they foreshadow in a, in a reflective way, in, in a non-perfect way, the, the work and person of Jesus Christ but on the other hand, they also fail to completely mirror Jesus because they're not Jesus. Types point to Jesus, but ultimately they are imperfect and they show the inadequacy of humanity and the need for one greater than the type. Or, to put it another way, Job, in his experience of being the greatest man in all the East and then being lowered and brought down and suffering and then being exalted again, above, uh, into the high place, points to and shows us Jesus, but Job is not Jesus. So, for that reason, Elihu um, is, a, is burning with anger at Job. It's because he wrongly implied that God had acted unjustly. Job had made the mistake of, of accusing God of acting unjustly and that's why Elihu is angry with him. But he's also angry at his three friends. In verse 3 it says he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. And then again in verse 5, when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So that phrase, no answer, means not a proper response. The three friends did not respond appropriately. They did not come back with what was needed to be said in response to what Job was speaking. 
They failed to call out Job for his righteousness in his own eyes. The three friends didn't say anything about Job, saying that, that God would, had made him an enemy or that God somehow needed to answer for, for his actions. The three friends didn't touch on that. They had accused Job of wrongdoing. Remember in verse 3, it says, uh, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. But you remember, that accusation had to do with them viewing Job as someone who deserved this suffering. Job, you must have done something in the past, some secret sin, something that we're not aware of to bring this all upon you. That's what their issue was with Job. So the three friends had not responded correctly. They told Job to repent and turn from evil, but that wasn't true. So we understand who Elihu was angry with, and now we understand why he was angry. But the big question before we, before we move on that we have to answer is, is this guy a good guy or a bad guy? Like I said, it's foundational for understanding the next six chapters. I'm just going to give you up front where, where I'm at. I believe Elihu is a good guy. He is a good guy. And so I want to go through a, a, at least a four-point argument and lay out my case. Number one, Elihu is introduced as Elihu, son of Barakal, the Buzzite of the family of Ram. We are given a brief genealogy. We are not given a brief genealogy for Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. Oftentimes, the Bible will introduce people of importance or someone noteworthy with a genealogy. For example, Jonah 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri. Isaiah 1.1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Jeremiah 1.1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. So in all these cases, a prophet of God is introduced with a brief genealogy. Now that's not the only people in the Bible that are, are introduced with a brief genealogy. We see other people, especially in the Old Testament, that are introduced with a brief genealogy. The point here is to show that because Elihu is introduced with that genealogy, he is more likely to be viewed as someone of importance. He's not some crazy guy. He's not some lunatic. He's someone who plays a part and that this section, 32-37, belongs here. He has something to say. Number two, Elihu states in 32, 18 through 20, that he is unable to contain himself. He's, he is compelled to speak. And this statement also represents the prophets of God, a prophet who feels compelled to speak a message from God. Specifically, we're thinking of Jeremiah. So here's Job 32. Job says, Behold, in my belly is like wine that has no vent. We read this just a moment ago. Like new wineskins ready to burst, I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. And then here's the passage from Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. So there's a similarity between Job and Jeremiah. Number three, Elihu claims to be speaking on behalf of God like other Old Testament prophets. Job 32, 18 says, For I am full of words, the spirit within me constrains me. And we're going to see later on in Job 36, Bear with me a little and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. 
I will get my knowledge from afar. Now this is one of those cases um, where, uh, I don't know if you recall, C.S. Lewis said that something similar about Jesus. He said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You remember this? It, when the, because of the things that Jesus said during his incarnate ministry, he's either lying, you know, he says, I am the son of God. Um, he's either a lunatic, he's crazy and insane, or he's Lord, he is who he says he is. We can somewhat apply this to the same thing here to, to Elihu. He's claiming to speak on God's behalf. Now, he's either a liar, and he's not speaking on his behalf, or he's a lunatic. He thinks he is, but he's not really. Or he really is a prophet acting on behalf of God, speaking God's words. Now, which one of these categories are we ready to, or prepared to put Elihu in? It would be very unusual if God allowed a liar or a lunatic to take up six chapters uninterrupted in God's word. In fact, that would be an anomaly. Nowhere in the rest of scripture do we see someone evil or, or, or a lying lunatic allowed to simply pontificate for six continuous chapters. It's just not allowed. It doesn't happen. So I'm, I'm very hesitant to call him a bad guy or a liar or a lunatic when he claims to be speaking on God's behalf. Number four, Elihu appears to be acting in concert with God. In three different areas, both Elihu and God give a charge to prepare for questioning. Job 33, 5, this is Elihu speaking, says, Answer me if you can, set your words in order before me, take your stand. And then God, in Job 38, says, I will question you and you make it known to me. Job 47, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Do you see the parallels there? They're both getting uh, Job to, ready to answer or to, to uh, uh, prepare for questioning. They also seem to be acting in concert in regards to taking issue with Job's self-justifying speech. Elihu, as we read today in 32, says he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And God, in Job 40, says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? So they're saying the same thing there. And then finally, both Elihu and God call attention to Job's ignorance of God's creative acts. Job 37, Elihu says this, Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his clouds to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds? Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? And then later in Job 38, we're going to hear from God, who says, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments, its thick darkness, its swaddling band? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? So both Elihu and God seem to be working in concert on several different levels. They're saying a lot of the same things, to Job. And then finally, what needs to be pointed out and should not be overlooked, Elihu is not rebuked like the three friends. When we get to the very last chapter of this book, chapter 42, it says this, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, wouldn't it make sense that if we had some kind of liar or lunatic claiming to speak on behalf of God for six entire chapters of the Bible, 
And we have a specific verse where God shows up at the end of this, of the end of this account to rebuke those who have not spoken correctly. Do you think maybe Elihu would have been included? I would say absolutely. So this is a strong piece of evidence that Elihu is a good guy. Now, this is important because as we move to the next several chapters, there's going to be some times where if we think he's a bad guy, we could kind of make a case for taking these verses one way, but if we understand he's a good guy, we need to see them in light of that. And then finally, this isn't really a main reason, but maybe more of an observation. God often uses a least likely person to accomplish his purposes. Okay. I'm thinking of Rahab and the Jericho spies. Rahab the prostitute used to hide the spies. I'm thinking of Joseph who was the younger helper to his brothers out in the sheep fields. And yet he was chosen to lead and rule Egypt. I'm thinking of Paul, the persecutor of the church. The last person anyone would think of to be called to be an apostle and to, to write the New Testament. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that God would choose this, this younger man, this Elihu, that is not full of wisdom and age like the others think they are, to speak words of God into the lives of Job and his three friends. So Elihu is speaking, I believe, as a prophet who is working in concert with God to bring a rebuke against Job and remind him that even though he is experiencing undeserved suffering, he crossed the line and went too far when he implied that God was making a mistake and that God was acting unjustly or needed to appear in court to defend himself. He just went too far. And again, that shows Job's humanity and the fact that he is a type and not Jesus himself. So now let's move on to the next verses 1 through 5. Now let's move on to 6 through 10. Young Gun. Uh, Elihu, who is the young gun here, he gives his reasons for not speaking up. In the ancient Near East, there was this very strong, unspoken cultural norm. The young ones do not speak out of turn. If, you're, if you find something on the shelf, don't pull on your parents' pant leg and say, Mom, Mom, Mom. You do not interrupt the older grown-ups when they're speaking. Elihu realizes that, and he realizes he's young, and he acknowledges that, I am young in years, you are aged, I get that, but it's time for me to interrupt. Understanding comes from God, not from age. And I think this is a cautionary message for people of all ages to understand that age is not to be the determining factor when weighing someone's words or wisdom or advice, especially regarding the things of God. Especially regarding the things of God. When it comes to the things of God, it is not a matter of age. It's a matter of whether or not someone is in Christ or not. I don't know if you remember several years ago, um, if you've had your, your finger on the pulse of Christianity, if you remember back in the early 2000s, I'd say right around 2000, 2001, maybe up to about 2010, there was a movement that swept through the church called the Emerging Church. Do you remember this? Um, it was like the next big thing. This, this was the turning point. This was where Christianity was headed. This was the future of Christianity. Well, of course, it's not. And a lot of us don't even remember it now. That's how much of an impact it actually made. 
But at the time, it was making a big splash, and there were lots of writers that were making a lot of money off of writing books talking about the emerging church, and they, they were leading people away from Christ. They, they were saying, essentially, we believe in God, but we're not going to define God, certainly not define him according to Scripture. And, and there's really no need for the kind of repentance that the Bible talks about. And there were, there were lots of other things that they said. They believe in God and nothing else, and on this we stand. That was essentially what they were writing. These guys were not young guns. They were writing these books. Uh, one of them in particular, I'm not going to mention his name, I would say he was probably in his late 50s, 60s, okay? Not a young guy. And he was writing and speaking and trying to lead the church in one direction. Now also, recall just for a minute, minute, about a year ago or a year and a half when I was on sabbatical, we had some pulpit supply come in and some of them were some pretty young guys from Mid-America Reform Seminary. They were in their 20s. Remember that? And they spoke from the Word of God, but they spoke from a humble heart that acknowledged the inerrancy of Scripture. They did the hard work of studying Scripture and making sure that what God was saying in His Word was what they were speaking to God's people. Now, I would much rather sit under the preaching and teaching of those young guns who were in their early to mid-20s than sit under the 50- or 60-year-old guy who was leading the church away. Both were claiming to be in Christ, by the way. Age is not the determining factor. It's whether or not you're in Christ and you're truly regenerate. Verse 8, the spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty is it makes him understand. Uh, he's not just saying here in verse 8 that all you have to do is be alive and breathing so, and then you will have wisdom and understanding from God. The breath of the Almighty can also be translated as spirit of the Almighty. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the Spirit of God giving understanding to the people of God regarding the Word of God. And it says that the Word of God is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. The things of God are, are revealed to the people of God by the Spirit of God. What does that look like? Well, it's like turning on a light. It, the Spirit of God allows the people of God to, to put things together. Now, it's not a, a matrix download where we're all of a sudden instantly know something. It still requires the, the work of reading the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, studying the Word of God. But as we are exposed to the words of God, the Spirit of God will open our spiritual eyes. The Spirit of God opens our spiritual eyes. That is one reason why we pray a prayer of illumination before we open God's Word every Sunday. We acknowledge our dependency upon the Lord, our need for the Spirit of God. And that's why if we, if we brought an average unbeliever and had them sit in the, the service today, this would be very boring. What, what is that guy? Blah, blah, blah. Is that why, who, who? What, what, he, what is he talking about? Why, how, how is this relevant? I can be at home right now. This doesn't make any sense. In, in the unbeliever's heart, there's no desire for the knowledge of the things of God. There's no desire to hear the word of God explained or opened up because they don't understand that these are the words of God to them. But the believer who has the spirit of God living and active in them understands and wants and thirsts after the things of God. The spirit of God gives understanding to the people of God and opens up the word of God. 
If you listen to the testimony of, of people who are Christians today who remember their pre-Christ life, you'll hear a lot of the common themes. I remember hearing several testimonies where people will say, yeah, I, I remember before I came to Christ, I, I just assumed that, that I was okay with God and that things were going to be fine and I, I thought I was a pretty good person and, and I didn't really see the need to, to go beyond that. And then after they come to Christ, they'll say something like, what was I thinking? Or, how did I miss this? How did I not see my need for a Savior? It's because God had not called them yet, and the Spirit of God had not given understanding yet. Now with Elihu, it's not only understanding in the sense of general wisdom. We hear quiet whispers of Elihu claiming to be speaking from divine Inspiration, and he's going to be more specific as we go on. So Elihu is the young gun, but he has something to say because the Spirit of God is revealing it to him. Verses 11 through 16, time to interrupt. He said, I waited patiently, I paid attention, I was listening to you the whole time, and you failed to give good counsel, you failed to rebuke Job for his self-justifying speech, therefore this is urgent. The toilet's overflowing. There's water pouring out on the bathroom floor. I can't wait. I'm not going to wait for you to get off the phone. I'm going to say something and interrupt the grown-ups. In verse 13, he says, Beware lest you say, We have found wisdom. God may vanquish him and not a man. So Elihu is saying, I've listened to you this whole time, and you haven't answered Job correctly, but don't, get, don't let yourself off the, off the hook by saying, we have indeed found wisdom, uh, the, but Job's not accepting it because uh, nobody can get through to him, so we're just going to let God take care of him, but we're still on the right. That's what Elihu is saying. He's saying, no, 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 don't, don't say that. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Your job's not done just because Job didn't respond to you, and only God can fix Job. That's not, that's not going to cut it. Verse 14, he says, He has not directed his words against me, meaning Job. And that's true. Elihu has not been a part of this conversation yet. He says, I'm jumping in, I'm interrupting as a new participant, and I will not answer him with your speeches. So at the outset, Elihu says, I'm not going to say the same thing that you said. Now, we are going to see some similarities. And that really shouldn't surprise us too much, because they're covering the same topics. They're covering the sovereignty of God, they're covering providence, they're covering suffering, they're covering evil, they're covering God's responses to evil and how God deals with evil. So we're going to expect to see a lot of the same topics covered. But at the outside, he says, I'm not going to say the same thing you said. So he's answering Job differently. In verses 17 through 22, I must speak. 15 and 16, do I need to wait any longer? You guys are done. You have nothing else to add. There's nothing else for you to say. I don't, you expect me to keep waiting and not interrupt even when you're done? Verse 17, I will also answer with my share. I will also declare my opinion. That looks a lot like synonymous parallelism. Same thing. He's saying the same thing two different ways. Opinion could also be translated as knowledge. NIV says what I know. I will declare what I know. So that's important to point out because both here and earlier in verse 10 where it says I declare my opinion, we need to understand Elihu is not interrupting so he can just kind of share what's on his mind. He's, he's interrupting 
to say what, what he knows, what's on his mind. He's going to convey and communicate what he believes God has, has revealed to him to share. So it's not just his opinion, uh, as if you know, his, his opinion is better than theirs. He, he has something to say. I will declare what I know. And then 18 through 20, there's that I am about to burst language that mirrors the Jeremiah language about being compelled to speak. I can't wait any longer. I must say these things. This yearning to speak the things of God. And then 21 through 22, Elihu states that he will speak impartially. He will not flatter anyone. He will not be swayed. This is yet again another piece of evidence to view Elihu as a good guy because this is similar to the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets spoke impartially. They spoke exactly what the Lord directed them to speak regardless of the outcome, regardless of of the consequences. They spoke as directed by the Spirit of God. Elihu says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to speak impartially. Interruption. If we had to summarize chapter 32, we would say Elihu is saying in his opening remarks that he is burning with anger at Job and his three friends. And even though he is young, he interrupts the conversation because he has something new to say that he feels compelled to communicate because what he has to say comes from an understanding and an inspiration given to him by God. So Elihu is a good guy who has good things to say And it was a good thing that he interrupted and broke into the conversation because he's going to be bringing a word from God. And it's always a good thing when God's word interrupts our lives. It's always a good thing. There's no breaking away from sin until God's word interrupts our life. If we all told our story, if we went around the room and we told our spiritual journey story, at some point it would include God's word breaking in and interrupting our life. Just from a personal standpoint, I can vividly recall, I was thinking, uh, I was in my uh, late 19, 20 years old in college, and I remember I was one of those guys, I thought I was fine, I had no need for God. I had no need to come to church on Sunday. I thought everything was going to be fine. But it was the Spirit of God interrupting through the Word of God that convicted me of my sin and my need for a Savior. The Lord sent someone into my life who brought the Word of God, who literally sat down across from me and opened the Word of God and had me read something that convicted me It interrupted my life. And for the first time in my life, I was realizing, wait a second, I'm not even on the map. I thought I was was well within Christian real estate. I'm not not even on the map here. I can't call myself a Christ follower at all. We need to understand, especially when we're considering and praying for unbelieving friends, family, co-workers, that unless God interrupts their life, they are not going to simply enthusiastically start to follow Jesus. We live in a world that is designed to minimize interruptions from God's word. If we think about the morning talk shows, the news programs, or maybe the late night talk shows, um, do they put a a verse of the day on the screen? No. No. 
Do they read scripture? No. Do they talk about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No. Unless it's mocking. Do you regularly discuss the things of God at work? Does your employer encourage you to take a 20-minute break to it so you can read the Bible? I doubt not, unless you work for a Christian organization. Students, do your teachers assign you reading from Scripture? Have they ever read from the Scriptures in front of the class? Do you see Scripture posted at the grocery store or at the gas station or on drive through menus when you pull up to a restaurant? I think we could go on and on, but the point is this. The world is set up to minimize interruptions by God's Word or from God's Word. It's entirely possible to get up in the morning, to get ready, to go about your day, to go to school or go to work, to come home, maybe run some errands, eat dinner, maybe even watch some TV at night and go to bed without one single exposure to God's Word. It's very possible to do that. The world is set up to make it appear that God's Word is unimportant. It places no emphasis on it. It's unnecessary. So that when it does show up, in an unbeliever's life, or in our, our life, it seems like a rude interruption. How dare you interrupt my day with the Bible? And that's the way Satan likes it. Just go about your day, go work hard, go play hard, raise your family, go on trips here and there. Don't pay any attention to God's word. You don't need that interruption. You don't need to interrupt your weekend with church. Why? Why would you suffer that interruption where the Bible is proclaimed and explained? You can even say that you believe God. Just don't let the Bible interrupt your life because the one who believes in God apart from Scripture is believing in a God of their own making. It's a God that they have imagined. It's not a God according to Scripture. How do we know what to believe about God unless we read it in the Bible? How do we know what repentance is unless we read about it in the Bible? How do we know what it looks like to be in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ unless we read the Bible? We need the Word of God to interrupt our life. I recently heard a testimony of someone who came to the Lord because God's Word interrupted their life. And the verse that interrupted their life was Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That verse interrupted their life. And they said at that moment, obviously by the power of the Holy Spirit, they said at that moment, when I heard that verse, all of a sudden it was like I realized, wait, wait. If God created the world and everything in it, I need to pay attention to this. If God created me and everything around me, I need to make sure that I'm following what he has to say for my life. Genesis 1.1 interrupted their life. Now, it's not just unbelievers that need God's word to interrupt their lives. We as believers want God to continually interrupt our lives. And it, it, it points us back to this question, back to, to Job and Elihu. I wonder what, had, what would have happened if Elihu had interrupted earlier? What if Elihu had not been as respectful to the aged and to his, to his elders? And what if he had jumped in right after the first Elihu speech? Would things perhaps have looked a little differently 
Would Job have kept his words and his heart attitude in check? Would he have been a little slower to demand and summon God to court so God could defend himself against what he seemed uh, what seemed to him be to be unjust actions? Would he have been a little more careful with how he lamented? Quite possibly. The, the problem is our sin nature. Sometimes we find ourselves treating the word of God like a child and we're the grown-up. And we don't want to be interrupted. We see or, or, or think about God's word and our attitude is, I'm busy right now. You need to wait until I'm done. And then you can speak to me. There's a man who was, was waking up in the morning and he was in bed and he, he had opened his eyes and just be, kind of became aware that he, it was a new day and he thought, I really need to, to read the Bible this morning. And he thought, but I know I've got a long day. I, let me just stay here a few minutes longer. And before he knew it, he was running late and he had to get up. And he thought, well, I'll, I'll, read it, uh, I'll read it when I get to work before everybody else shows up. And so he went ahead and showered and ate breakfast and, and drove to work and made pretty good time. And he got there a little early. And he sat down at his desk and he thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible. And he brought that out. And he, he, it bumped the, the mouse and it woke the computer up. And he said, you know what, I'll just check email first. And so he just did a quick check. And then all of a sudden he ended up responding to one and, and then the other. And before he knew it, that pre-work time before the day got started and everyone else showed up was over. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll read it at lunch. And so he worked hard and then at about 10.45, somebody popped their head in and said, hey, we're going to, we're going to Jimmy's for, for lunch. You want to come with us? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. And, and so lunchtime came around and he said, well, I'll, I'll read it when I get home. So he went to lunch with his friends and, then, and he finished work and it was a long day and he came home and it was, he was tired and he had enough time to, to make a quick dinner and he thought, I'm just going to sit down and enjoy my dinner and, and just watch something while I eat and then I'll get to the Bible. And so he began watching and eating and then he finished his dinner, but you know, it was one of those streaming shows and it just kind of naturally continued into the next episode and it just kept going and going and before he knew it, he thought, Ugh, I am heading to bed, but I'll read it when I get into bed. And so he went upstairs and he got ready. And the lights were dim low and he crawled into bed and his eyes were so heavy and he looked at the Bible and he thought, you know what, I, even if I tried to read it, I wouldn't be able to concentrate. I'll read it when I get up in the morning. And he turned off the light. God's word never interrupted his day. And so he never got to it. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time God's word interrupted your life? When was the last time God's word interrupted your life and spoke to you and gave you insight on a spiritual principle or spiritual truth or maybe gave you a light bulb aha moment because it interrupted your life when was the last time God's word interrupted your life with a word of conviction about a particular sin? Because it's one thing to realize, yeah, I know I should change this, or yeah, I know that's, that's a sin. It's another thing to have it in front of your eyes and you read it and it smack you in the forehead. 
When was the last time God's word interrupted your life with a message of grace and unconditional love? Because we need that. We need God's word to interrupt our lives with grace. What about encouragement? What about a signpost or confirmation that you're making the right decision? We need those. Or a stop sign to let you know, no, don't, don't make that decision. You need to change course. What about acceptance? When was the last time God's word interrupted your life to tell you that despite your sin, God will never stop his sanctifying work in your life? But he's committed to you to the end. We all need those kinds of interruptions. No matter what God is saying to us, we need those interruptions. It's always a good thing when God's word interrupts our life. So I would ask us this morning if we would commit or maybe recommit to taking a portion of our day and marking it off as dedicated time for reading God's word. We could call it an intentional interruption in our day for the purpose of reading the Bible. After all, reading the Bible and hearing from God's word is urgent. It can't wait. God's word is worth the interruption. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for sending us your Savior, your appointed Savior who who acts on behalf of your people, who has done the necessary work on our behalf, who, who became our substitute on our behalf, and by faith we could be made right with you because of the work of our Savior. Father, we also thank you for sending us your word, but we acknowledge that it, does, it doesn't just seep into our minds automatically. We, we have to be exposed to it, either hearing it or reading it. And so, Father, we invite your word to interrupt our lives. In fact, we want to plan times of interruption where your word speaks to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.